0: What up, Crossing family? It is so good to see you. I wanna welcome all of our different locations. Those of you watching online and those of you who are part of our Crossing Inside family, we just got to celebrate 13 inside baptisms from this past month of ministry. Praising God for that. This weekend is a special weekend here at the Crossing because our friends from the Solomon Foundation are here. And the Solomon Foundation has been a big part of the Crossing story. Doug has been one of our biggest and best ministry partners here at The Crossing. Because of Doug's leadership and faith in God and The Crossing, he helped us start so many of our campuses. In fact, uh, this weekend our Macomb campus is celebrating its 16th birthday. And he came in at just the right time and helped us get that campus all the way to completion and then helped us start every campus after that. And then we entered into our most strategic partnership with the Solomon Foundation. We gifted them five of our locations. And in turn, they paid off all of our remaining debt, allowing us to become a debt-free church and gave us money to help further our mission. It is a 30-year partnership and we immediately, as a leadership team, set aside money, uh, a principal amount of money that will grow with interest to be able to purchase back a pre-agreed amount at the very end of the term. We did this partnership for two reasons. The first, we wanted to be debt free and retain the full usage of all of our properties for high capacity ministry. But the most important reason that we did this was that by giving them our assets, they're able to make loans 20 times the value of our assets to help other churches grow and expand and have stories just like The Crossing. Jennifer and I have our retirement at the Solomon Foundation. So does our staff. In fact, 247 people who sit in the seat just like you at our church have over $11 million invested there. This allows them to continue to help churches while giving your money a chance to grow and work for you to expand the kingdom of God. Would you please put a warm crossing welcome together for the TSF family, Mr. Doug and Mr. Ryan. Come on up, guys. This is special on so many fronts, which I know we'll get to in just a second. Come over here, Ryan. Or, yeah, you come over here, well, otherwise, I'll be the Oreo. I'll be the — I'll be the cream, OK? Uh, question, because there's a lot of people uh, paying attention to us, Doug. What is the
1: Solomon Foundation? So the Solomon Foundation, Clayton, is what's called a Church Extension Fund, which basically we're a not-for-profit, and what happens is people that sit in the chairs and pews of the Restoration Movement, Christian Church, and Church of Christ all across America can deposit money at Solomon Foundation, then we pool that money and we make loans to churches all over the United States and in Eastern Europe. So if somebody in
0: our church was going, you know what, I want my money to work for me and work for God, how do they get involved with the Solomon Foundation?
1: So it's real simple. We're based in Denver. You can go on our website. You can pick up some information from us this weekend. But basically, we offer certificates just like you would get at the bank. So, a six-month, one-year, three-year, five-year, seven- or ten-year certificate that you can purchase, you get a good yield on that, and then, again, that money's going to go help build churches.
0: Now, um, uh, what has been the impact of the Solomon Foundation? Because this is going to blow your mind.
1: This is what motivates guys like Ryan and I every day. Yep. Okay? Here's the deal. In over 13 years, we've helped over 600 churches. Wow! We took a snapshot of the church when we made them the loan. We took a snapshot today, and those 600 churches now have over 160,000 more people in church. Come on! But, but there's a but. That's not the best number. I know. Here it comes. Are you ready? Come on! Give it to them. Those 600 churches have baptized over 65. Thousand people. Come on. Absolutely awesome. Now, do you want to do it or you want you, — you talk about Ryan. Okay. So, uh, the Solomon Foundation went on a national search uh, to find a new president. I serve as the CEO and we decided we needed to find a younger person to come in and, and really help guide the organization forward. So we went on a national search and this guy right here. Helped me a lot because he introduced me to Ryan. So, the new president of the Solomon Foundation actually came from Macomb. He came from our church.
0: <laughs> Ryan Riggins and Ashley are actually dear friends of Jennifer and I. They were a big part of our church. They are incredible encouragers, dear friends. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but they've uh, got really serious about their faith because of the faith of you guys making a campus happen in Macomb. And now Ryan gets to help churches just like us all across the country through a partnership with the Salmon Foundation. If you want more information, about the Solomon Foundation, there are uh, people from the Solomon Foundation family at most of our locations in the lobby. If you don't, there's information and brochures. They are a first-class organization that you can interact with. And by partnering with them, you get to partner with us to help the Kingdom of God grow and
1: expand. Ryan, real quick, just tell us, what's your experience been in just uh, two months being in Denver? so yeah, two months being in Denver, uh, it's been quite an honor. It's an honor to work with Doug. It's God's quite the author uh, yep. to, to be a part of the Macomb campus and learn that that was uh, one of the first loans that Solomon Foundation made uh, upon being formed, and to get the call from Doug and, and talk to Clayton and Doug about this opportunity, and and now I was talking to somebody in the lobby, and every day at work, we just get to talk about helping churches grow. So Come on. It's an it's honor. awesome. God it's bless you good guys. to be back in crossing country. That's right. exactly right. <laughs>
0: Would Thank you guys you. give a big round of applause? Okay. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. I want to give you some ground rules. Um, I'm going to read my sermon. The reason I'm going to read my sermon is because I don't want to screw it up. So just deal with the lack of jokes and, you know, what I normally provide for you. Um, second thing I want to tell you is please, 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 Uh, come to church next weekend and bring a friend. I just finished the sermon for next weekend this morning, and I cannot wait to preach it because it is gonna wrap this entire series up. It's gonna put a bow on it that I think we are all gonna really appreciate. But before we get to week five, we need to deal with week four. We have been in a sermon series called Truth and Tension, Balancing Faith and Love on Hot Topic Issues. And here's what I've noticed, and I think you've noticed it too that the closer you are to the sin, the situation, and the person, the more you tend to bend on the truth. And the further you are from the sin, the situation, and the person, the harder you hit with the truth. And I don't think this comes from a bad place. I think it comes from a well-meaning place. It's hard to balance these issues. The situations and the people are complex. What parts of the Bible get highlighted often depends on how close you are to the person, how close you are to the situation. Good, well-meaning people like you, like me, can get this wrong. At the beginning of the series, we laid some ground rules. I just want to recap them. One, no clapping. We're not going to clap for a sin that we don't struggle with. We preach the gospel every single week here at the crossing, and if we're not gonna clap for the power of the cross, we're not gonna clap for a sin that put in there. Rule number two, no emails. We want face-to-face conversations. Feel free to reach out via email, but I want you to know in advance that our response is gonna find a time to get together and look at the whites of your eyes so you can see the whites of ours, so we can hear your tone and you can hear ours. We will get coffee, a meal, you pick it, our treat. Rule number three, 1 Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He's in charge. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But there's a way that we're supposed to give that answer. But do this with gentleness and respect. The overarching theme around these topics or these hot topic issues has been this. God's way is the best way. We believe that to the core of our being here at The Crossing. That no matter the question, no matter the situation, no matter the struggle, God's way is the best way. God has a better way for us. Not just in how we live our lives, but in how we respond to sins and situations and people. Today, we are gonna talk about abortion and I'm gonna take a really long way around the barn. I want you to pay close attention because some of the things that I'm gonna to talk to you about, you're gonna be like, where is he going with this? But it will help provide a foundation for you to view the framework that you're perceiving through the news outlets and secular culture. A pastor in Kansas City got up in June of 2022, and his church celebrated the overturning of Roe v. Wade. After the service, a young woman came up to him in tears and she said, why didn't anyone ever tell me that abortion was wrong? She had no idea. I made the decision that we must take a clear stand on this issue and educate those who call the crossing home about God's design and direction for our lives. To be silent on this issue would be to sin It made me realize that while I have avoided sermons like this because they're not the ideal sermons to reach people in their pain, in the meantime, the world has never stopped talking about these issues. It might help to realize how we got to where we are today. There has been more change than ever in recorded history over the last 65 years. This is especially true in the realm of human sexuality marriage, and gender. Think of how out of place you feel right now compared to 18 months ago, five years ago. This should actually create a little bit of empathy for us when we're interacting with our parents or our grandparents. I need you to hear me say this. The world was different 60 years ago. It was a completely different place before the 1960s. What happened in the 60s? A lot. You had the Civil Rights Movement, We had black power, Chicano power, feminist movement, anti-war movement against Vietnam, the legal push for secularization, which included prayer uh, being removed from schools, the teaching of evolution. This became the seedbed for a revolution around human sexuality. Thus, the sexual revolution was born. And this was the mantra. If we stop making sex such a big deal, it won't be such a big deal. Many civil rights activists have indicated a level of jealousy over the amount of progress the gay and trans movement has made culturally over the last 60 years, because their effectiveness and efficiency are profound. Society has experienced four major shifts in how we think about sex and sexuality since the 60s. Shift number one, sex was separated from childbearing. Before the 60s, that wasn't the case. You're gonna go, Clayton's saying a lot of stuff. Rewatch it, because listen to what I'm about to say. It wasn't until 1954 that clinical tests began for the pill. It was approved by the FDA in 1960, but it was not until 1965 that the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution protects the liberty of married couples to buy and use contraceptives without government restriction. Up to that point, it was illegal to use any drug, medicine, or instrument to prevent contraception. It wasn't until 1972 that laws were passed that allowed single people to buy contraceptives. It was illegal for unmarried people to get contraceptives before 1972. Then, in 1973, Roe v. Wade ruled that the Constitution protects a woman's right to abortion. Shift number two, sex was separated from a lifelong marital covenant. Legalizing gay marriage is a modern Western phenomenon. Religious History is unanimous on this. Moses and the Jews, Jesus and the Christians, Muhammad and the Muslims, Dalai Lama and the Buddhists, all contend that sex should be confined to opposite sex marital covenants. And the world as a whole is almost unanimous on this. Outside of predominantly white, progressive, western cities, marriage between a man and a woman is the accepted Mandate. What may be the most profound is that secular world superpowers like China and Russia are also in lockstep with the rest of the world on this. The views of progressive Western, mostly white, rich society around marriage are an aberration on the global scale. So, why protect marriage? The common logic surrounding the argument for protecting marriage is societal flourishing. This is actually an area of agreement between secular governments and the religious organizations. You may, if you pay attention to politics, heard these famous lines, not just in politics, but from the church. You ready? The healthy family is the backbone of a healthy society. Interestingly enough, they're right and have enormous data to back it up. History shows that societies flourish when marriages are strengthened and encouraged, sexual impulse restrained, and parents take responsibility for their children. All the teachers are like, preach. Study after study shows that the ideal child-rearing environment is a biological mom and a biological dad, and it's not even close. This was actually the logic used around the creation of divorce law in America. It was decided that it was in the best interest of our collective future and the future of our children to do everything we can to keep parents together. Marriage laws and the benefits, along with divorce laws and the benefits, were designed to incentivize people to invest in their marriage and their family. That's why I'm so thankful we have a marriage retreat center and offering marriage help and ministries at many of our locations. A strong family impacts society positively on so many levels. However, sadly, over time, these benefits became to be viewed as promoting inequality more than social flourishing. The cultural message of today is that sex is no big deal. We have hookup culture, friends with benefits, Netflix and chill. We have entire apps and algorithms, websites and social media platforms dedicated to propping it up. They don't just facilitate hookup culture, they have monetized it. Shift number three, sex was separated from male-female relationships. And shift number four, all of this was framed up as moral progress. So. Sex was separated from childbearing. Sex was separated from a lifelong marital covenant. Sex was separated from male-female relationships. And it was all framed up as progress. And this is what became known as the sexual revolution. If we stop making sex such a big deal, it won't be such a big deal. The question we should probably ask 60 years later is were they right? Are we healthier sexually as a culture today than we were 60 years ago. And the evidence points to this being an impossible argument to make. The meteoric rise of abortion, the invisible father epidemic in our culture, the explosion of the porn industry, the Me Too movement, body image issues and depression and mental health that are, that's being caused, all point to it didn't work. It wasn't good for us. Nancy Piercy is a scholar at Houston Baptist University. And in her book, Love Thy Body, she suggests that there is one broken theory underneath the worldview of those today who are pro-abortion, pro-transgenderism, pro-LGB sexual relationships, and euthanasia. And the theory is personhood theory. And personhood theory answers this question. What makes a human body a person? And some of you are going, that's a confusing statement. Check with me. Now, I'm going to use a phrase called upper story and lower story. Now, here at the crossing, we talk about the upper story, which is God's plan, and the lower story, which is our sinful reality. And so we've used those terms a lot here. She uses these exact same terms, but she is simply talking about uh, your body. So just kind of Forget everything we've taught you about upper and lower story for, you know, the last 25 years, just for this sermon to talk about your body, okay? That's an agreement we have. Here's the upper story. The upper story is personhood, and the lower story is our physical bodies. Personhood theory divides humans into two parts. Their internal dispositions, which is their personhood, their upper story, and their physical bodies, their biology, the lower story. And then it teaches us to prioritize what our internal dispositions say over what our physical bodies say. You're gonna wanna hold on to that because it's gonna help you understand a majority of the rest of my message. The result is that our internal dispositions become the basis for our human rights and our identity over our physical bodies. The upper story trumps the lower story. The authentic you is found in your personhood, not your biology, or an integration of both. This is what philosophers would call the fact-value split. Uh, Here's how this plays out. The Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century contended that there are two parts to the human story, the upper story and the lower story. The lower story has empirical science, and the upper story deals with morality and theology. And since the lower story can be tested with the scientific method, it resides in the realm of fact, while our morality resides in the realm of values. But you can't argue with facts. They're binding on everyone. But morals, values, those are subjective. And so they elevated the lower story. Then the Romantic movement took place at the turn of the 19th century, and they pushed back against the devaluation of the upper story. So these thinker, or thinkers swung the pendulum in the exact opposite direction, and they focused on questions about justice, and freedom, and morality, and meaning. This is where a lot of the isms of our day came to be. This is where you get idealism, Marxism, existentialism, and postmodernism today all of the tension that you and I feel is these two groups pushing back on one another. People are trying to figure out how to integrate the upper story and the lower story. Let me give you an example. That's why you can have a group of people screaming, trust the science, wear a mask, and then at the same time saying, who cares what bodily science says, you are whatever gender you feel like. What you see there is someone trying to harmonize the fact-value split. They're trying to figure out what do I do with the upper story and the lower story? And in what situations does science win? And in what situations do my upper dispositions win? How does this play out with sex? Well, this is where the whole idea of sex isn't that big of a deal comes from. When the Bible says that a deep emotional, spiritual level, two people become one in the sex act, This is just simply regarded by them as not true. You don't have to make sex emotional if you don't want to. You don't have to make it spiritual if you don't want to. Just do what you want. If you wanna have an open marriage, go ahead. If you wanna have sex without marriage, go ahead. If you wanna have lots of partners, go ahead. It's just sex, it's just pleasure. Do what feels right to you. But this again, is a low view of the body and people, you know this, are regularly hurt by and through sex. While schools may be incredibly smart to have sex education programs that point to the value of contraceptives and condoms, there is no contraceptive, there is no condom big enough for your heart. It just might be smart to teach alongside of that a biblical view of sex as an option for them to choose as well. A view that teaches that we should be careful, respectful of sex, and in doing so, we just might protect them from the emotional fallout that comes from a porn addiction, multiple partners, and abuse. Personhood theory might also give us insight onto why body image issues continue to rise in America Billions spent each year on cosmetics, fitness, and surgery, not to mention what's spent on fashion with, fashion with slimming technology. Add to that special foods, minerals, and diets. The reason? People hate their real bodies. They want one that doesn't have fat, doesn't age, and they will never be comfortable in their own God-given skin. They will never be comfortable in their body, their lower story. They hate it. That's how personhood theory plays out in sex. What about in transgenderism? Leah Thomas, in 2022, won the 500-yard freestyle NCAA championship in Atlanta by a full second, which is a huge margin. But before Leah transitioned from uh, male to female, she was a D1 swimmer in the men's division. And as a man, he was a decent swimmer in D1 competition, but he wasn't winning any titles. The question our society is wrestling through right now is, is this okay? And many trans activists are speaking and saying, of course it is. If she says she's a woman, she's a woman. You decide your own gender, upper story. But on the other side of the argument, check this, feminists and women's rights activists are saying, we've had our rights violated by men long enough. These two Categorically different definitions on how to determine gender in sport are taking place right now. One appeals to the lower story, your body, your biology. And the other one is appealing to the upper story, what's in your head, how you feel, your personality. And there are lots of different situations regarding people and gender fluidity. Transgender people often say they are trapped in the wrong body. This perceived mismatch between physical sex and psychological gender is called gender dysphoria. And while many advocate that it must have some biochemical basis, perhaps uh, there's a hormonal cause, there has been no clear scientific evidence uncovered. But what's most surprising is most transgender advocates argue the opposite. Their position is to deny that gender is rooted in biology, in the lower story. To them, gender is completely independent of the body. It is simply a judgment of the heart. The problem with this position from the trans activists is that the body, the lower story, is not seen as having any value, any purpose and if it does not operate as and it does not operate as a signpost to the way that they were created by God or if they don't believe in God evolution in order to flourish as individuals and as a society it just doesn't matter to them it is simply your body is simply a collection of physical systems it's just muscles bones organs and cells that should be and can be operated on shifted rewired when one becomes or feels disoriented with them. If you feel a separation between your upper story and your lower story, you operate on your lower story to bring it in alignment with your upper story. Gender is not something derived from the body, it is something we impose on the body. Thus, gender becomes a social construct. If you wanted to uh, go home and do this, you can search Gender Unicorn on Google. An organization called Trans Student Educational Resource published this cartoon that deconstructs sexuality into five separate factors that can all contradict one another, okay? This is like the Rosetta Stone if you're trying to understand what's happening in our world right now. This is how they separate you. There's your gender identity, how you identify. Then there's expression, how you want to be seen by other people. Then there's your sex assigned at birth, which for Christians, there's only been this one and then you have your sexually attracted to, and then you have your emotionally attracted to. What they're saying is, this is how you get all the names, is you can be, have your sex assigned at birth being a male, but your gender expression can be a female, but your identity can be male, but you can be attracted to men, but you can be emotionally attracted to women. This is how you get all of the labels, is you pick from here where you actually are, and then you impose it on the body. It is designed to appeal to young children, and it's being used in public school districts around the nation to teach students that there is no unified self. Why should someone care about the structure of the body? Who should some, why should someone let that inform their identity? Why should someone's sexed body have anything to say about their moral choices? This disassociates completely the body from people as humans. It leaves the body with no intrinsic, no intrinsic dignity, no purpose that we are obliged to respect. This is such a profoundly low view of the body. It is widely accepted today that if a person senses a disconnection between biological sex and sexual desire, the proper course of action is to accept the psychological state as the authentic state. Thus, elevating the fleeting nature of our feelings, over the created natural facts of the body. The biblical worldview, on the other hand, leads to a unified view of the body. While it may be seen or treated as harsh and judgmental, biblical morality and sexuality show a deep respect for the body being an integral part of who you are. Since God is behind nature, that means it provides a reference point or a natural law for morality and human flourishing. Christians believe that there is purpose in the physical structures of our bodies that we are to respect, not disregard. This is the teleological argument. If you remember from week one, where I talked about kitchen knives and lawnmowers and washing machines, the teleological morality says that nature, bodies, Science, the lower story matters too because in the created world, we see the creator and his purpose. How does this show up with abortion? There are two key steps to how pro-choice people apply personhood theory. The first is at conception, the baby is just a fetus, so it's in the lower story. It's just a body, then at some undetermined time it becomes a person that has rights. People debate when that time is. Some say it's when the baby has a heartbeat. Others say the viability line is about 20 weeks because that's when the baby can technically live outside of the mother's womb. Some say it's not a person until it's born. Some philosophers suggest that we should allow abortion up to several days afterwards because it takes three days to see if the baby has certain deformities or disabilities. They are completely separating in a baby, the lower story from the upper story. It has a body, it's not a person. Here's the interesting thing. Science has now proven that life begins at conception. Due to advances in genetics and DNA, virtually all professional bioethicists all agree that life begins at conception. An embryo has a full set of chromosomes and DNA. It is complete. It is a whole individual, capable of internally directed development in a seamless trajectory from the moment of fertilization. The science on this issue is settled. Why then is the science not treated as fact? Personhood theory. This is literally the logic of Roe v. Wade. In ordinary conversation, you and I use the phrase human being to mean the same thing as person. They're synonyms. The two terms were ripped apart by the Supreme Court in its 1973 Roe v. Wade abortion decision, which ruled that even though the baby in the womb is human, it is not a person under the 14th Amendment. Thus, we have a new category of individual, the human non-person. In fact, in the Supreme Court's ruling, Justice Harry Blackburn, or Blackman, asserted point blank The word person, as used in the 14th amendment, does not include the unborn. The implication of this is that it is simply being human is not enough to qualify for rights until the baby becomes a person. It is a disposable piece of matter. It can be used for research, experiments, tinkered with genetically, harvested for organs, and then disposed of with other medical waste personhood theory promotes a very low view of the human body, which ultimately dehumanizes us all. Having a body is inherently, or is not inherently valuable or worthy of life. This is the worldview that we're talking about. But biblical morality expresses a high view of the body The biblical view of sexuality is not based on a few scattered verses. It's based on the teleological worldview that encourages people to live in accord with the physical design of their bodies. By respecting the body, the biblical ethic seeks to unite body and person. It heals self-alienation over time. It creates integrity and wholeness. Our minds and emotions are brought in tune with our body. Christianity holds that both Stories matter. The upper story of our souls matter, and our inner life matters. However, it also holds that your body matters. In Genesis 1, 26 through 31, the creation narrative unfolds. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit (coughs) emphasizes a few things about humans. We are created in God's image. This is where the inherent dignity of every human being finds its origin. Therefore, enemy love, forgiveness, generosity, care for the least of these become more than just hallmarks of the Christian faith. They're baked into the foundation of our theology. All of this and more are built upon the dignity of humankind because they were made in the image of God. They are not just image bearers of God but they are children of God. And inside of this we find our cultural mandate, that we are to have dominion, a vocation to rule and reign and fill the earth. Out of this comes work and vocation, calling and career, government and ordered civilization. We were created with gender complementarity, male and female he created them. In fact, that verse is directly attached to the idea that humans were created in the image of God and are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is part of it. And this is where the themes of, and guardrails of marriage and sex and family are formed. And when God finished all of this, God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The starting point of the human story proclaims the goodness of the material realm in our gendered bodies. God could have chosen to make us angels, spirits without bodies. He could have created us in the spiritual realm for us to float around in. But instead, God made you in a material universe with a material body, why? Because God values the material dimension he wants us to value it as well. He values it so much that Jesus put a body on and came to earth on your behalf and on mine. And scripture tells us that one day at the redemption of all things will include our resurrected what? Bodies. God values both the upper story of your soul and the lower story of your body. The Bible clearly teaches that we are created by God and have value from the moment of conception. Psalm 139 says this, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. At day 22, the brain and nervous system have been forming for several days and the heart, it begins to beat. At day 40, the eyes and ears continue forming, and the hands and feet and legs are easily discerned. At week eight, the external genitalia start developing, and within a week, the baby will be recognizable as a little boy or a little girl for parents to have a gender reveal party. At week 11, the baby's fingers begin moving independently, and fingerprints have appeared. In baby girls, Her tiny ovaries already contain all of the eggs she will ever produce, over two million of them. At week 12, she'll start sucking her thumb. At week 13, she will sense light and turn away from the bright light. At week 17, they hear sounds beyond the womb. No wonder John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb when Mary arrived with the pregnant Jesus. Luke chapter 1 records the story. At that time, Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. In the Mosaic law, the law of retribution is prescribed for a person who injures or kills an unborn child showing that the unborn child is viewed with the same dignity and value as one who has already been born. Exodus 21 records it like this. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Proverbs chapter six has even stronger language. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. To put in context the loss of innocent lives, I wanna show you this graphic. If you were to go to Washington, D.C., and you were to go to the World War II Memorial, which I would encourage you to do, you will be struck by the amount of lives that were lost in World War II. But this data only takes us to 2014. This is nine years old, and this is how many abortions have, been, have taken place, and this is how many were lost in the Second World War. There is a battle being waged, and the battle is this, who counts as one of us? And there are those who are convinced that it is performative in nature. You have to be able to do certain things, whether it be, feel, or whether it be uh, feeling pain, or be a certain age, or have certain skills, or cognitive abilities. Today, modern medicine is creating a genocide among those with chromosomal issues. Prenatal screenings and diagnostic tests are frequently performed to identify potential genetic disorders in developing babies. These flawed tests are then used to justify the termination of those who might have a disorder. Those who are... uh, thought to have Down syndrome in Iceland are all aborted. 98% suspected of having Down syndrome have been aborted in Denmark, 90% in England, 77% in France, and 67% here in the United States of America, a nation that proposes to be under God, are participating in a prenatal genocide against precious, innocent individuals. However, there is another worldview a biblical one, a worldview that states that you were made by God and you were endowed. It's not performative. You were endowed your value by your creator. It was given to you by him. You were made by him and you were made in his image. Your value is not based on how much money you make, your color of your skin, your IQ, your athletic ability, and praise God, your BMI. You were stamped with the image of a God and you are precious in his sight and you are precious in the sight of anyone who claims to be a Jesus follower. Hear me, to those of you who paid for abortions, drove people to an abortion, told your girl to take care of it, or had an abortion, you murdered an innocent life. But I need you to hear me say this we have an incredibly good God. Because Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were on your way to the clinic, God was willing to send his son to die on your behalf. Your value is not dictated by what you've done. Your value is dictated by the cross of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of you who participated in abortion, Jesus paid it, he covered the cost for it, and he will forgive you for it. And I also need you to hear me say this because I don't want you to get this wrong. Romans 3, 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who's sitting in the room with you right now has sinned, and our sins have hurt innocent people too. And that's why here at The Crossing, we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there is no sin God will not forgive, and there is no sinner our God will not save. And that is a gospel message that we proclaim. We're moving to a time of decision. <clears throat> Romans chapter eight says this, but the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are all God's children. Who would have adopted me? I don't know about you, but I would have passed on me. Too many problems, too many demons, too much pride, too much anger, too much impatience, too much lust, too much idolatry. But God didn't pass on me. That means he didn't pass on you. And if you're here today and you have never started an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I have such good news for you. You can have it. He is ready right now. He is not surprised by what you've done. He already paid for what you've done and he paid for what you're going to do. There's no greater message. And if you want it, you can start it today at your campus, at your location, in the room where you're watching this from, there's going to be a staff member over by the baptistry and they'd love to talk to you and answer any of the questions. Or maybe you want to turn to a person who came with who brought you. I would just tell you don't put it off. And to those of you who are Christians, we must stop believing the lie from Satan that our sins don't impact other people. And we must also start believing that tomorrow is the best day to get right with God. There is no better time than right now. We have the most beautiful message to share and God's best way to take hold of it is for us to do it together. If you would during this invitation time, whether you're gonna lift your voices and sing or you wanna come up to the steps and get down and pray, would you spend just a little bit of time thanking God for dying on your behalf for your sins and help us create a community where people who are far from God can find him here. Would you stand with me? God, we have no hope, no chance without you. And God, I know that there are people right now who are angry and some are sad. For some, we just unearthed a memory that they had buried so long ago. And God, the last thing I want is for them to think that you don't love them, that you don't care for them and that this isn't a church for them. God, we want your gospel, your power, your love, your cross, your blood to win every day, all day. And help us to be a part of that. In your name I pray. Amen.